Hi, and welcome back to Apology, a podcast about books and reading and more. Today's guest is the photographer, painter, former professional skateboarder, and skate company owner, Ed Templeton. Ed is one of my favorite artists working today in any medium. His photos and paintings are most often concerned with suburbia, which he explores through the world immediately around him in his hometown of Huntington Beach, California. Ed's work is not just visually beautiful, especially for me, his black and white photos and larger scale paintings, but also incredibly observant and um, witty. I think that Ed makes photographs, paintings, and drawings like a writer. There are stories and nuances in his art. He just released a new book called 87 Drawings, which contains 30 years worth of work, and his exhibition The Spring Cycle recently ran at Roberts Projects in LA. Uh, That featured a bunch of big paintings and some photos, and it was a really impressive take on the suburbs of Southern California. You can see the work from it at the gallery's website, which is robertsprojectsla.com. Ed also has another life in the skate world where he's a total hero. He was a highly respected, innovative pro for multiple decades, and he's the owner of Toy Machine, a popular and always exciting and visually excellent skate company. So I was really happy to talk with Ed and learn more about what he likes to read and watch, um, as well as more about his life and his history. He's widely interested in so many things, um, from from history to art to films. Uh, Oh, and I want to add a little aside here. Listening back to this and previous episodes, I've become aware of how frequently I say oh wow, in response to something my guest says. Um, I'm going to now regard that as a verbal tick and I'm going to work on minimizing it. That being said, here is Ed Templeton on the Apology Podcast. So what are you reading right now? So I'm kind of a grazer, a book grazer, which listening to a bunch of your past episodes has given me a lot of support. Yeah. I've, I've also held a lot of guilt for being a grazer. Like I feel something inside of me was saying you shouldn't be putting down one book and picking up another book and going back and forth. It's not. And then listening to a bunch of your guests who said it was really liberating to hear them say like, Oh yeah, if I don't like a book, I just quit. I don't feel required to read the rest of it or even you said in one of your past episodes that you skip in a biography you'll skip the early part and get to the parts you like which is yeah which is also liberating too because i've always kind of felt like you can you should you should be able to dip in and get what you want out of a book and not necessarily have to slog through the whole thing if it's if you're only interested in one certain part you know yeah it's kind of like an album you can skip the songs that you don't like as much yeah so to answer your question, like the stuff on my nightstand right now is really weird sort of selection, I guess. I have this uh, this book of essays on photography by Clément Charot. Hmm, I've never heard of him. He's the director of photography at the uh, the MoMA. Oh, wow. Okay. He had just been the director of photography at the San Francisco MoMA and switched to take the job at the New York MoMA. And so, yeah, that's, that's so far kind of dense. It's like really uh, super academic. So I've probably been slow on that one. <laughs> Very theoretical. Yeah. Kind of. 
I got this book called The New Suburban History by Kevin M. Krauss and Thomas Sugru, <laughs> uh-huh. which which I've started to started to dip into, uh, especially because I'm just super interested in suburbia. And right. A lot of my work, my painting work, and a lot of my photography work lately has been about suburbia. So I thought I should probably know more about it. I know. I mean, I feel like I do know about it a lot through, through yeah. osmosis and living it, living in it, and re- been interested in that subject. But I feel like this might be a selection of different essays, so it'll be kind of interesting to get into that. And then randomly, there's a, randomly there's a Todd Heido photo on the cover. Oh, cool! Yeah, that looks good. For- so it's like a friend of mine who has a photo on the cover. Yeah. What are you? What have you started that one? Yeah, I, I started that one, but it's really. I just lost my bookmark actually on it. Is that one dense as well? So far it's it's not as it's not as dense, but yeah, there's a little bit of denseness. And I'm re- I'm realizing that a lot of the books I I choose lately have been sort of uh just not novels, I guess. Do you have a history of reading novels? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think in the you know, like as a as a young person I did uh Vonnegut, a lot of Vonnegut, of course, I think starting with Cat's Cradle. Yeah. And uh, what did you like about him? I don't know. I feel like maybe there's a, was it a reverence? Yeah. <laughs> Cat's yeah. Cradle just seemed like really kind of funny. And then, then I got into it. I think like reading, uh, what was it? Slaughterhouse Five is that, that's about the war. Right. That was interesting. And, uh, what other ones did I read? I feel like I here's here's my problem. I feel like I'm a really bad at retaining what I read. Have you I know, yeah, me? I know what you mean. Have you had that with people? At, yeah. In the moment, I in the moment I love the book, and I feel like a week later I I couldn't recall anything about it. If you yeah. ask, I don't know if it's a it's a brain mechanism where when you're put on the spot you just you just freeze and can't do it. And there's like subliminally you, you ingested it to some extent, but, um, but yeah, Mark Twain. Oh, I remember, wow. I remember yeah. Being, I, I've always had this thing about just wanting to read the classics. I think it came from my grandfather. Um, every time I waste time during, during the day, every time I spend an hour looking at Instagram, I, I like put the phone down and go, well, that could have been, reading an hour of Moby Dick, which, right. I never, which I've never read. Um, but I think about it. That's like my go-to thing. I just think in my head, like I just, I could have read Moby Dick. If I added up all these Instagram hours, I should have read this classic book, <laughs> but, but I've ever coming across uh, letters, letters from earth by Mark Twain. Are you familiar with that one? I haven't read that one. No. It's What's part that? of this collection that is like there's a there's a collection of his work called the the uncensored writings of Mark Twain, mm. and it's in that collection, and it's called uh, Letters from Earth, and it's basically, um, I think, a story about angels looking down at Earth and kind of in the typical Twain witticisms, you know, just commenting on the ludicrousness of humans uh-huh. <laughs> and what and what we believe, but it's also like a really sort of atheistic book in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. Well, it just it kind of pokes a lot of fun at religion. 
And I credit that book, discovering that book as part of my sort of awake reawakening out of my religious upbringing. Oh, how were you raised very Christian? Yeah, super Christian, born again Christians, my grandparents and my, you know, took us to, so I went to Sunday school every Sunday, learned about the Bible and whatnot. And, uh, and then maybe at 18, no, I mean, earlier than that, really early on. Yeah, maybe, I th- so I guess around nine or 10 years old, I had this awakening moment with my grandmother or as a, you know, as a young child, you're kind of like starting to ponder things that <laughs> into your brain. Yeah. And, uh, and I've been learning all this stuff in church about how to get to heaven, the true way, the only way as, <laughs> as per their belief system, you know? And, you know, so I'm sitting there pondering and my grandma comes in the room and I, and I hit, and I come up, and I have a question for her. I go, what happens to a baby in India who's born and never gets a chance to find the Lord mm. because they believe a different way or, or it's a baby. So this it, well, it hasn't even been able to learn and they die. What happens to that baby? And she was like, well, unfortunately that, that baby goes to hell. Oh my God. Yeah. And I remember just my mind was just like, this is this like, that moment it just like exploded religion is all bullshit all like everything's bullshit wow like i just instantly became an atheist at that moment (laughs) at eight you know 10 years old or nine years old and then um obviously because you grow up in that system you sort of it takes a while for you to like openly exclaim that because you right they'll kind of feel like oh maybe there's i'm gonna go to hell or something and then so anyway then i think i so i read all the the three horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, like Sam uh-huh. Harris. I read, uh, um, oh, what's the first Sam Harris book? I forgot now. I don't know. Oh man. See, this is what I, my brain does. I, I mess up. It's like such, it's, it's the first one. I, so anyway, there's a, there's a Sam Harris book about atheism. And then I read the God delusion by Dawkins. Right. And then God is not great by Christopher Hitchens. I like that book a lot. Yeah. That stuff's great. And I decided, I don't know, it's almost like, it's funny because once you like have these realizations, it's like reading this stuff is almost like a reassurance or something like, yeah, sure. It's, I'm sure it's true, but it's really, I don't know. I've always, I've been interested in that forever, how belief systems uh, manifest themselves in daily life. Mm. Obviously belief systems drive everything. Um, especially in our political culture, like, you know, half the country is beholden to this weird ideological thing about abortions and when life begins and all this stuff all stemming from, I mean, that's, and these books do such a brilliant job at like showing how religion poisons everything in life. Yeah. And uh, so I'm interested in that as a photographer, even, you know, like, um, Oh, how does that translate into photography? I just get, I'm just fascinated by these, the imagery, the way people express them, their inner thoughts on a, in an outward way, which ends up, what's end, which ends up being able to be translated into a photograph. So the obvious one is like the religious zealots at the pier with their signs and stuff like that's a very um, over the top 
expression of your your insane religious belief that you're willing to go out and you know hold a sign for people but then there's so many more subtle ways under that just down to like people's wearing of a cross and the yeah the stickers in their car like little any little thing that kind of translates into this is how religion manifests itself in our daily life is something i'm interested in shooting in my and then in my paintings for instance you know the garbage on the ground, especially in Huntington Beach, wherever all these guys are passing out their religious flyers, you know, people out of politeness take them, walk two feet, throw them on the ground. So, like the beach and the pier is littered with all these religious pamphlets, which is just a real weird, like metaphorical sort of thing, right? <laughs> Visually, yeah. totally, yeah. Do you have um, a conception of the afterlife, or do you believe that? What do you believe happens after death? I, you just turn to dust. You're, yeah. You know, you're, yeah, you're just, that's what's so amazing about, that's the, that's the part I don't understand that people can't fathom is that this is it. You yeah. just, you just die. Like, think about that. Doesn't, wouldn't that thought alone make life that much more precious? Like the yeah. people who, the people who think that they're going to live forever are the people who, treat life like shit. I don't know. It's the people who believe you're going to, that this is your only chance is the people who are show empathy and kindness, because that's the only way to get through life. Yeah. My one shot. Like, why would I spend time hating people or, or like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to explain, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. I do. Um, I want to go back to your grandparents for a second. What do you remember your, what do you remember them reading when you were a little kid? Okay. So they, I mean, they were like typical conservatives. Like I, you know, I mean, they were also from a different generation. I, you know, as much as I like criticize one aspect of their life and how it affected me, um, many other aspects were brilliant. I mean, the seed for me being an artist comes from them. They took me to museums. So that like my grandmother was actually, aside from the conservative religious side was also fairly cosmopolitan. I mean, I think, and she was the more artsy one. Like my grandfather was actually a total stick in the mud, (laughs) you know, according to my uncle Bob, who was, you know, he was uh, his son who tells me some more stories about him. He was always straight laced and like claims he never cursed and stuff like that. Whereas my grandma before she met him was like, you know, winning beauty contests. I, no, she, I know for a fact, if she didn't get married, which was the, you know, the, the norm back then, she would have have been, uh, like a Donna Coran or something. I mean, I think she knew Tommy Hilfiger personally. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's from like the East coast, upper crust, you know, her father was a doctor. Um, and she was winning, you know, like I said, beauty contests and winning fashion design contests. She's got all these clippings from the paper where she was doing great in fashion. And she was in that circle. Like, so I have, wow. you know, I know she would have probably done something in fashion. She smokes cigarettes and stuff. And then, <laughs> you know, and then she meets this like straight laced patriotic Christian American boy who, and in some ways conformed to him. So I think the bohemian side of her, ended up manifesting in me a little bit <laughs> right, through, right. through osmosis. What she couldn't be is what, is what I ended up becoming a little bit, but she's the person who took, took, a, took me to museums and 
you know, showed me Modigliani paintings and, and, you know, it was like, oh, this is fine. And nudity is okay. Like it's, it's a, it's a tasteful nude. It's art, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm, yeah. Um, so my grandparents had, I guess what I'm trying to say is she's, you know, born in 1919. He, and they, I mean, he had verse at the tip of his tongue. He oh, would, really? Wow. He would, he would re- just throw out long, long tracks of like Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven or Annabelle Lee mm. and uh, Shakespeare and all sorts of stuff. And I was just always flabbergasted by how much he could just recite. And I think that's just, you know, a testament to that era where that's, you know, in school they would say like, memorize this book and like recite it to yeah. me. And just the act of doing that was going to help culture you by knowing these words and being able to say them. And, and so, you know, he, they had like the thorn birds and, you know, war and peace and all sorts of stuff on their shelf and the prophet by Um, and yeah, but then also a lot of patriotic stuff, you know, he had like, uh, I think he had like a Reagan biography or something and like Mm. just weird stuff. I remember like, looking at his checkbook one time and he had written checks to like focus on the family and like, Oh wow. Dobson and all this, all these things. And like, you know, I was just being like, Oh God. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, they read that kind of stuff. Like he would say, Oh, you should really read this book on like Alexander Hamilton or what? I don't know. One of the ones that was yeah. Like in retrospect, I was like, oh, I think these guys are pretty racist and like fucked up and you're wanting me to read about them. <laughs> but I like that kind of stuff too. I mean, I read the, oh, I'm just basing on the guy's name now. I don't know. He wrote a, a big book about Lewis and Clark. Oh, um, was it David McCullough? No. Well, maybe. No. No. Who's the other guy who does stuff like that? Not sure. Uh, I'm spacing. It's a, he's a famous guy. It's like one of those things that slips my mind. But he did a... Yeah, like an account of Lewis and Clark. That was really interesting. So I like that kind of stuff. I mean, I think that comes from my grandparents too. Like this just weird reverence for American history. Mm. Um, weird patriotism. I mean, like a commercial or hear, just hearing someone sing the national anthem will get, bring a tear to my eye. I have this like weird wow. spot for stuff like that. That like both disgusts me. But then I still, it still happens. I get like, a, you know, I get choked up or something. Do you remember when you became unpatriotic, just like you became unchristian? I don't know if I'm necessarily unpatriotic. Um, oh, no. It's harder. It's harder now. Yeah. <laughs> of course, under Trump and stuff. But I, I guess, yeah, I guess there's an optimism there where I still believe in the the ideal of what America could be. But yeah. Were your grandparents um, like an anomaly for where you lived? Like quoting Shakespeare and, and knowing Edgar Allan Poe was, was, was that kind of, did that make them stand out in the neighborhood you grew up in? I don't think so. Just because of their age and like, and being in Orange County, they were probably typically conservative old people, you know, in a lot of right. ways. Right. And I haven't been able to go be around as many people of that age, you know? um to see like what their reading habits were close up kind of thing and what they were doing but um you know he was he signed up for the war oh wow did he serve in the war he was that he's that generation i mean 1919 so 
he, their life was like in many ways, perfectly typical of that generation. Mm-hmm. He, you know, Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and he signed up for the war. He was going to college. So he would have been an officer and, uh, they got married, you know, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, sign up for the war, get married, uh, get your wife pregnant, uh-huh. go off to war. So my uncle Bob was born while he was still in the Pacific. He was in the Navy. Wow. And then, yeah, come back and, and then, <laughs> you know, get out of the city and raise a family in the suburbs. What did he do for a living? He was in paper. I'm not exactly, <laughs> I wish I knew exactly. I think he was, uh, he worked for a company called CalComp, which uh-huh. was, I think, an early company that did printers and like plotters, old school plotters, which would draw like plans up, you know? Yeah, yeah. And something with paper. He was like always interested in working in paper and, and printers and early on, like early, yeah, really weird. Interesting. Do you remember your mother reading at all? No, that's, that's another weird part is like, so my mother has been developmentally disabled. Oh, okay. She was, as a baby, she was, she had the chicken pox as a baby and stopped breathing one day. Wow. And it's only just by luck and chance that she lived. Um, my grandma was freaking out. She just was turning blue. And I guess they lived across the street from a doctor, a doctor's office. Mm. And in a panic, she went over there and banged on the door, even though he was never there on the week. This was a weekend, I guess. And he's not, he normally wouldn't be there. And only by chance he was there and was able to revive my mom. But um, wow. not until she had suffered brain damage from all the, like the lack of oxygen to her brain. So having said that, it sounds bad, but she was like, a brilliant, not, well, not brilliant, (laughs) brilliant's like not the right word there. Um, Yeah. She was, you know, she's a regular person. (laughs) I don't know how to put it. Right. Right. She lived a regular life. Uh, She just intellectually is very um, sort of slow. Even when, even saying that doesn't sound right. I don't know how to describe it. They say that her like development stopped at an 18 year old level. Oh, okay. So, my grandparents helped her her whole life doing her like bills and stuff. So like math, um, you know, she's just not a reader. She wouldn't read a book, put it that way. She, yeah. she didn't read books. Um, yeah. She's just, was very simple in that way, but also very like loving and normal. And like, you know, she raised two kids and had, and was married and, you know, had, did live a normal life. She was pretty much normal, but just in a way that, she just wasn't, I couldn't have a talk with her about philosophy or, or concepts of any, like, you know, she just knows what's right and what's wrong. And, and she was able to drive and, and work and, you know, I don't know. It's, 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 it's hard to explain, yeah. but it probably, it probably does factor into what made me into whatever I am. How do you think it impacted you? I think that at an early age, I realized that intellectually it was just easy to win with her, like in an argument or something, you know? Yeah. And it almost made, I felt like it made me grow up a little faster because I realized like 
she's not there. She can't help me. <laughs> you know, when I, when you have a problem, like with anything with school or some, something happens in your life, it's like, she's not going to be able to like really talk to you about it. Yeah. In that way. So I think it just made me kind of grow up fast, but also my grandparents were served as kind of like father and mother figures. So I could talk to them about stuff. Right. So essentially I, I felt like, I, I felt like I had, I feel lucky almost because my father and mother figures were from that older generation. Yeah. I grew up with their sort of cadence a little bit and their, their words, which I think was a big help for a kid, you know, growing up in the eighties. Yeah. What kind of a teenager were you? Do you remember reading when you were that age in, in your teenage years? Yeah, I read. I mean, that's the thing. I, I think early on I was reading Twain and, um, and then maybe a little bit later, um, Vonnegut and stuff like that. But then I think when I found skateboarding, I got around some other friends who showed me other books. So I remember like really being floored. And I'm trying to think of what age this might have been. I had to be like, this might have been after. Eh, this might have been before I was 18. I just read the the Painted Bird by Jersey Kaczynski. Oh, I don't I've never read that. I I was I love that. I wonder if I would, if I re- reread it now, how I'd feel about it. But um, that was, I was floored by that. And then Blind Date. So I started reading a bunch of Krasinski books and he did a, oh, what's his famous one? Being There. Yeah, Being There. I love that film. Which is a movie, yeah, as well. But, um, yeah, so I read Being There, but I started with Painted Bird. And that was, that was an eye opener for you? I just remember being kind of floored by like, Oh, this is what a book can really like, can really do. Like, yeah. Like this is a, an interesting story, which I almost can't remember now. I remember some like gruesome parts of it. Cause I think it's about um, fl- like the war time, fleeing the war, um, the Cossacks. I remember like a lot of weird stuff about, you know, like, but there's some scene where like an eye gets gouged out with a spoon Wow. That kind of stuck with me at that age. I remember like being freaked out by that. Um, yeah. I kind of want to re- re- see if revisit that and see. It's funny to go back to the books that you loved when you were a teenager. I recently tried to read um, Henry Miller again and it didn't really work for me. Interesting. I never, so I really think I also remember finally stand still like the hummingbird. I read Tropic <laughs> of Cancer and Capricorn and Nexus and Sexus and Plexus. It's funny. I think before, like, I think I was like interested in reading those because I had heard so much about them. But I think I was like, oh, maybe I'll check out this like smaller one first. And I love the, for some reason, just the title. Yeah, it's good. I like that. Like the idea of standing still like the hummingbird where it takes thousands of flutter beats to, to just, just to stand still. Like how it, like how much work it takes just to stand in one spot. Yeah, that whole yeah. concept was really. I like that. I was attracted to him because I, I I learned that he was like he wrote about sex a lot. That's kind of why I started reading him. But yeah, then, you know, it went deeper than that. Yeah, I probably would like it for those for those same reasons. I mean, I think I, um, for me, I read. Um, Laughter in the Dark by Nabokov mm-hmm. before I read Lolita mm. and felt like Laughter in the Dark was better. Yeah, yeah. Like Lolita ended up being sort of a slog 
after <laughs> maybe <laughs> i wish i had read them the other way around maybe wait which one is what's laughter in the dark about it's almost the same story i mean it's about a guy who is uh infatuated with a, with a younger girl right and i was kind of like wow this is like the crib notes for for lolita oh that's you know? funny yeah yeah it's like the precursor it's like he like wrote it wrote that book and then thought oh i'm gonna like expound on this and write a bigger book yeah 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 i'm probably people who are like abakov scholars are like listening to me going like this guy doesn't know what he's talking about yeah what are you saying right now <laughs> but that's how, that's what i felt at the time i just remember thinking like wow this is like lolita light but it's better it's more spare and like i don't know i've ever been like you know have being having it be a page turner where i didn't want to put it down kind of thing you know What's some of your um, favorite writing about photography or writing by photographers? Most of this kind of stuff has been in interview form, you know? Okay. Yeah. Like the first one, like right when you said that, the first thing that popped to my head was this interview that was in Aperture Magazine with Anders Peterson. He's a Swedish photographer. And I remember a bunch of his answers were really like, wow, this is incredible. Kind of talking about the fire of photography and like how people who have the fire to, to look are just kind of built in. I, don't know, I just remember being really excited by it. Yeah. But yeah, there's not like a track. I have some books next to my bed on, on my nightstand right now. I have like a Gordon Parks book oh, called cool. a, Cho- a choice of weapons, which I haven't started yet, but it looks really interesting. And I love that, that title as well. Like, you know, yeah. Coming from a photographer, like a, his choice of weapon was a camera. Um, I have a recently published uh, book by Danny Lyon, which is, a, I think, collected writings of Danny Lyon called Blood Something. I don't have it next to me here, but um, yeah. I, ha- I only brought books over that I started reading or, or have read. So all the ones that are yet to be cracked open are still sitting there. Have you shown me all the books that you brought? No, there's so many here. What else? What else is there? <laughs> so I remember being perturbed when i was a kid also reading uh apocalypse culture have you no i don't know familiar that. With this no feral house put it out which is like a known for comic books right apocalypse culture by adam parfrey okay it's a, it's a collection of different writings but it's like super fucked up it's like ted kaczynski's writings and like you know everything just bad and underground um there's like accounts of child pornography and like John Benet Ramsey stories and like yeah stuff about art outsider artists who do fucked up art and uh you know case the case for genocide and stuff like just really like <laughs> you know like countercultural stuff type of stuff. Yeah. Um and you read that when you were younger? I read this when I was pretty young. You know, thinking because it's like it has Joel Coleman's art on the cover, and I was all, oh, oh yeah, sick, and like, you know, and then it's like, oh, this is like really countercultural and fucked up in a lot of ways. But I remember being kind of floored by it, and like, there's, I, and I can't, I couldn't find it this morning. I was trying to find the one essay in here about sort of the case for like 
thinning the culture, just taking people out kind of thing, like how it would be beneficial to the world. And then, and then seeing like seeing um, the Avengers movies and the whole concept of Thanos wanting to like just snap his fingers and like eliminate half, half of the world to make it better. I was like watching that going like, he's probably right. (laughs) Me (laughs) too. Yeah. Thanos is right. Like the world would be way better. Like think of all the resources that would be able to be shared by less people. And like, yeah, but um, yeah, it was funny. But I remember like that when I saw that movie, I remember thinking about this essay and I'm like, gosh, I wonder if they were like influenced by these. And I don't know what that essay came from. I can't remember it. Even It might've been Adam Parfrey himself who wrote, who did that. But um, yeah, this collection, there's, this is, this is number two. There's like apocalypse culture one and two. Okay. But if you like fucked up shit, I'm sure I do. I'm sure you would like it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like photos too. Super fucked up. Like, I mean, that's like, I probably got this book at, so I used to browse like, um, do you remember like the soap plant on Melrose Boulevard? No, I'm, I'm only a few years into living in LA. Okay, so. yeah, It's not there anymore, but I think it's sort of changed. It's called La Luz de Jesus Gallery now. Um, but that, that used to be this place called the soap plant, which is like a weird little store behind, I think a clothing store. And they had a book, a little book section where it was just this kind of stuff. Like they had the research magazines, they had Teddy Bond zines Mm. for sale and all sorts of other zines and like, you know, sort of underground comics. And like, I think you could, you know, that's where you could find like a book of Joe Coleman's art and stuff on Henry Darger and like outsider artists and then um, yeah. apocalypse culture books and the research books that I, I probably bought that at the soap plant. Um, Places I, like that are so important to kids. I think. Yeah. I mean, as a kid, you find it and you're like, wow, I'm like, not, this is like, I'm not supposed to be here. This is like, yeah, such a cool place. Would and you, then, uh, Oh, sorry. Go on, please. Oh, I just have like, there's so many books here. Cause I do a lot of like, I do. I mean, it's funny. Like when you asked me to be on this, I thought, like, I don't, I don't know if I consider myself I, like I'm a reader, but I'm also one of those people that barely has time to read. Yeah. Like I really spend most of my time working on toy machine, my skate company, doing graphics and making making paintings and working on photo books and working, <laughs> shooting photos and whatnot. So like for me, reading is about like going to bed. Yeah. And I kind of get in bed and read. And a lot of times I get like a one page in and then I'm like, and I'm out. And so it's like a wonder, well, you, like when, so when you ask me, I'm like, God, I, I feel like I never get to finish any books. But then as I like went through the house going like, Oh, I read that. I read that. I read that. Like, I was like, okay, I, like, you know, I guess I am a reader. I definitely have, I mean, I buy books like crazy, yeah. both, both photo books and art books and, uh, and novels and books. Cause I just want to read them, but then I never find myself reading them. And I kind of wish I could just, uh, you know, take a Saturday and just go, okay, I'm just going to read for five hours a day or something like that. But I, yeah. I literally never do that. And so. Well, what's your daily practice? Like, do you paint every day or do you paint in spurts? It goes in spurts. So I just finished a show. And so yeah, it was a great show, by the way. Thanks. When I finished that show, like Deanna was even like, I think you, it's been like three months now. You haven't been in there. 
So like I finished the last painting for the show and that, and then I just, I like had to switch hats to, uh, I had been neglecting a bunch of graphics for toy machine. So I started going into graphic mode and just drawing and doing uh, skateboard graphics. Mm. It's nice to be able to switch hats like that, but it kind yeah. of also gets weird. Cause it's like, I wish I, yeah, I don't know. I wish I could just pick one lane and stay in it sometimes and just do that yeah. for a while. Yeah. But um so the books I've recently just finished reading were um these I have three four books here that I just read recently. One is Kurt Anderson Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson. I don't know that. Well, it's not it's it's a it's sort of a history book. <laughs> okay. I mean the it's one of those books that you see on that like a bestseller stand which is kind of funny. It's like fantasy land, how America went haywire a 500 year history, but it's like right up my alley as far as like the stuff I get interested in, in reading. Cause it's a history about how America got fucked up. It's almost like when you, are you at, like, if you ask yourself, how did we get to Trump? How is it even possible? This guy goes from like, essentially like, columbus to to here you know um um, and it's it's funny because we kind of like look at you look at australia and say like okay they were like a former penal colony and like what that's part of their dna is this like it was like a prison like you know a country branched out of being a prison to to that i mean america is like no different at all we were he details how essentially religion was used as an advertising a false advertising premise to get people to colonize oh you that's know? interesting yeah like they want like the the crown wanted wanted to colonize it but they once they got there and realized like this place is really tough it's like really tough to start from scratch you know yeah yeah and so they literally advertised America to the religious people in the Protestants at the time in, in the, in the England saying like, this will be your, your Shangri-La. This will be your, like your salvation. This is your Holy land. You can start here and be free from religious tyranny. And basically, so essentially he's trying to say that like the people that started that were the seed of America were like the suckers that bought this, that bought the lie, you know? Because <laughs> yeah, they yeah. got here, they got here and were like, oh shit, this place sucks. Like there's there's nothing here. We have to like do everything from scratch. And uh so that that's like the first premise, which was really interesting. Like, so essentially he's just like, you know, America is is born out of the people who fall for the Nigerian prince email scam. Like that's <laughs> like, like that's who we are in our, in our earliest DNA is, is are the people that fall for that stuff. And then he details, of course, how all the, like the churches just split over and over again and how they split was really fascinating because it was always like extremism, you know, it's like, here's one church and then one person from that church. And he de- gives, goes into like granular detail of like, which, which, you know, how these different churches branched into the different, um, you know, Baptist, Lutheran, and all these different um, spring, springs, uh, branches out of the, yeah, out of yeah. the early church. 
and how it's always, it was always through extremism. So it's like one person was like, well, I believe this, and this is like way more hardcore way of believing. And then they would get like all these followers to be like, yeah, this guy's right. It's more hardcore this way. And they would go like <laughs> even more hard. So it was always like almost like a refining towards extremism to these different branches of how they believed. And just so that's just fascinating and just goes, you know, yeah, it goes on and on about all the way up to just now. And I have, I know you asked people about their marginalia. Yeah. Oh, wow. You, you, you post-it note. I definitely do a little tabbing depending on the book. Like, like, I don't know if I have as much reverence for this as I might for a classic. So I definitely have like some pencil marks and some highlights in here. Um, Do, Do you write at all? I do write a little bit. Well, in what form? Gosh, it's kind of embarrassing, but I, I don't know. I, I've written some stories. I kind of write little bits of prose for a while. I haven't for a long time now, but for a while I would like do these peer walks every day. Pre-pandemic, I would go take a walk on the H- Huntington Beach Pier. Yeah. Kind of like a photo walk. I just, you know serving many purposes, get out of the house and walk and, uh, but also shoot a bunch of photos. And then I would also uh, like also do a bunch of Instagram posts from that walk. A lot of times, uh, right. daily, hashtag daily HP peer photo, um, yeah. kind of gone dormant, but, um, but I would, you know, so I just go there and experience life and do that. But a lot of times I'd come back from that experience and like do an Instagram post. And instead of writing, I would just like write, a little free verse, you know, a little, a little prose about my day, kind of like if you've ever read Krishnamurti, the, yeah, before he gets into the sermon, he would just like do like an intense description of like the birds and the trees and like what's happening. And then it would kind of go into the sermon or whatever. Um, Kind of like that. I would just describe like the pelicans and the waves and what I saw. And like, there might be a little sort of overarching theme within the little, mini pros so we're talking like a paragraph you know yeah but i would do those and i've kind of collected them i i started like copying them out and putting them on a little you know in a file so i might you know delusions of grandeur someday like collect a book of like instagram pros or something i don't know i love that yeah you could pair them with the hp peer photos yeah possibly i don't know i just thought it's good to save it i'm a collector and a saver so i just once I did once I did like five or 10, I was like, okay, maybe I should start saving these. And then yeah. I don't know, I have a bunch of them. So that's like one kind of way I've written. Um, but yeah, I don't think I have like a, aside from like writing stuff for skate mags, um, you know, I would like, they'd ask me to write a story. So I'd kind of dive into that about a, a contest or something like that. Like, yeah. a, like for big brother magazine, I would write sort of like tour articles um, back in the day. Yeah. Almost got my ass kicked once. What happened? I wrote a, an article in Big Brother about how to st- how to spot snowboarders. <laughs> when I made fun of their like stupid hats and stuff at the time. And I guess one particular snowboarder thought it was like directed at him and I heard he was like after me. Uh-huh. <laughs> nothing ever ha- nothing ever happened but I was it- like told like uh this I forgot the guy's name even right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this guy's after you. The snowboarder's out to get you. Yeah, he's like he thought it was directly at him, and he wants to punch you. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you read on tour? Yeah, yeah. I would always like bring a book. It's funny. I listened to Jerry's Jerry Sue's episode, and yeah, 
he described it perfectly, like bringing a book, but not almost ever getting a chance to really like on a skateboard tour. It's always, there's so much chaos that it's really hard to like really read. Yeah. I remember seeing like, uh, I mean, on the tour, I mean, everyone, uh, it's funny. A lot of people brought books. I remember going on tour with Heath Kirchard. He had like Chuck Pound Chuck books. I feel like Leo also read some of those books. Um, Leo Romero. Leo, Leo Romero. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I always travel with books, but I find that I can't really read when I'm traveling. I bring one. I mean, I've I've been able to read on a plane here and there, and then um, it's nice to have a book and read it when I'm traveling. But again, like you're, it's always so busy. You're on the go so much that it's that that kind of like concentrated time. Yeah, is yeah. hard. So, Fantasyland is one book I read recently that you know, which is sort of like a nonfiction history type book, right? Um, this other one, which is falls in the same category, was called it's called Stealing the Mystic Lamb. Stealing the Mystic Lamb, okay. Which is a, the saga of the Jan Van Eck altarpiece. I'm not familiar with this. So this is like total art nerd stuff. Yeah. Um, so the are you familiar with the 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 famous Ghent altarpiece? No, I'm not. I know Jan Van Eck, but I'm not familiar with this. <laughs> So Jan Van Eck and his brother, Hubert Van Eck, painted this um, giant altarpiece. It's in, it's in Ghent, Belgium, in the St. Bavos Cathedral in Ghent. And essentially that piece of art is, signals the beginning of the Renaissance. Mm. Renaissance painters would travel to Ghent just to look at this painting to get inspiration like your your michelangelo's and all these like famous renaissance painters basically like bowed to the (laughs) to the altarpiece as uh, and it's you know so as history is unfolded it's like a lot of scholars point to that as like this is pretty much the start of it this is this signals the change from like early religious art which is kind of flat to a renaissance feel where it's like more super realistic yeah yeah still super religious but then also the saga of this painting is incredible because everyone tried to steal it oh wow no napoleon stole it for the louvre (laughs) and belgium got it back hitler stole it for his museum during the war during world war ii and so have you heard of that movie the monuments men Mm, yeah yeah is that uh george clooney george clooney yeah I love that movie because it's about this. Oh, okay, cool. I'll watch it's it. It's funny because like, I don't think people like that movie and a lot of people just, uh, you know, I don't think it got super great reviews or anything like that. Yeah. But if you're interested in art, um, it's an awesome movie because it's, it's essentially a story about the group of um, army soldiers that were assigned to find, to try to help save the art in Europe. That you sounds, yeah, that sounds great. It's, it's so it's, you know, but it's a dramatization. So there's like, you know, it's storylines going through it and stuff and it might be kind of hokey and a little cheesy, but like I said, I have, <laughs> I have a very sentimental uh, bent in me and, uh, and also it's just about this stuff, you know? So it's about George Clooney plays a character who tries to assemble his team of people that are going to like help, you know, save the art. Yeah. But it's, it's fascinating because if you like been to Paris so there's a there's an art museum right now, a, foot, a photography museum called the Jus de Pomme. Are you familiar with the Jus de Pomme? No, I'm not. 
it's like on place Concord where the big obelisk is, you know, in Paris. And, um, it's at the end of the, the Tuileries garden, which comes from the Louvre. Okay. Yeah. The, the Louvre, the Tuileries garden. And then at the end of it, there's these two, two museums, the Orangery and the Jus de Palm. the Orangery houses, Monet's water lilies. And mm. they have a, a great collection of like Modigliani and Degas and all that kind of stuff. And then the other building is the Jus de Palm, which is a photography museum now. And, but that's also where Hitler stored his art when they, when he took over Paris and then looted all the art he wanted for his, you know, planned, you know, Hitler museum of art, whatever it was. <laughs> right, right. Uh, they basically looted all the art and stored it there and cataloged it there in the Jus de Palm. So it's kind of crazy going in that building and realizing like, oh, this is the place where like all the Nazi art was like first cataloged. And then as they, yeah. before they shipped it out to Germany. Yeah. Um, so in the story of the movie, there's a woman there who is cataloging the art um, or was cataloging the art for Hitler and is now has this amazing list that these guys need to basically like find where this art is hidden and stuff like that, you know, and like, so famously, um, and there's a documentary called the rape of Europa, I think. Okay. Um, which details this in a documentary form, um, which is fascinating too. Like the, how Hitler was like hell bent on stealing all this art, yeah. obviously he called a bunch of art degenerate, but also stole a bunch of art that he wanted for his museums. And his Holy grail was the get altarpiece. And it was hidden in a, in a salt mine in Austria. Wow. They had a salt mine all this art was hidden in it. And as you know, the allied forces were retreating the tr- the German army. He had, there was plans to literally blow up the mine. He was like, if, well, if I'm on the way, you know, cause they did scorched earth on the way out of all of these places. Yeah. Which meant like, if we're not going to get it, we're, we're just fucking torching the place and <laughs> leaving you with bulls with nothing. you know. Right. And so, there was plans to literally blow up this mine with all this art in it. And the Ghent altarpiece was in that mine amongst like, I mean, like Michelangelo's like Peta, I think was in there. Like all like insane, like masterpieces were in this mine and it was like, had orders to be blown up. And the, so the, in the movie, they basically like save it. And there's a funny scene where they're like looking for one of the panels of the altarpiece. And they're like looking at a map on a table and the guy drops his pencil and like goes under the table and he's like, and the table they're, they're working, looking at the map on is just like a sawhorse with one of the Gant alter, one of the panels from the altar pieces under it. And they're like, well, we found it. Like, you know, so, so it's, it's funny, but, um, but it's kind of amazing that way. So this book basically details this. It's like literally only about one painting in the history of the painting. That's great. Killing the mystic lamb and how many thefts it's gone through both Napoleon and Hitler, but other ones. I mean, there's one panel missing still. Oh, wow. And Hitler sent like Hermann Goring to like, you know, like find this fucking piece. I want this piece. Like um, just, uh, just fascinating learning about the, the painting. And I, you know, and I spent, I did a, an exhibition in Ghent, uh, my, the, the beginning of my mid career survey, Mm. 2010 was in Ghent. So I spent a month there and I would go in and look at this Gantt altarpiece any any free chance I had. It's still there. I mean, you can just go see it. Um, it's behind glass now, and it's like guarded and everything like that because everyone wants to steal it so bad. 
but it's it's pretty humbling piece of art it's amazing to stand there and um apparently i just read that they finally moved it within the church to its original spot Mm. but they had to like retrofit take some old like ancient walls out to like Uh uh, house it now because before it was just like literally open in the open air like just sitting there in one of those little chapels in a, in a cathedral where you can like go and pray, you know, and light a yeah. candle kind of thing. Yeah. So I guess they had to like put a big glass box in there and have an escape route and stuff for it. <laughs> wow. What a story. So yeah, that's like the kind of stuff I've been reading where it's like both, you know, weird history stuff. And I just, I don't know, I geek out on that. Another super dry one I read recently was this one, George Gross. Cool. Art in politics in the Weimar Republic. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by the Weimar times. Yeah, I, I love that. So like Otto Dix is a huge favorite of mine and George Gross, of course. And that whole period between, between the world wars, I'm just fascinated by it. And um, The decadence. Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm obsessed with that era, which also kind of loops into all the movies I've been watching, the thir- 1930s movies. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about those. Um, you turned me on to that. I mean, I, I'd always sort of heard about them, but I didn't really start watching them until you recommended them to me. What is it that attracts you to pre-code? Well, let's first of all say, for those who don't know, what pre-code is, and then what what attracts you to them? So yeah, pre-code Hollywood is essentially when the talkies started at... I guess the end of the 1920s. Yeah. There was always sort of a a censorship office, but it was toothless. Mm. So there were people who were trying to review films and make it safe for kids, quote unquote, you know, kind of thing. Because the theaters back then were just, they just played movies. There was no rating system. You know, a kid would like pay a nickel and sit there all day watching movies. And some of these movies had nudity and like, obviously like insane themes that uh-huh. you know so parents would sometimes are like you know church leagues would get super pissed about the movies and boycott movies or like call for boycotts and then like it was a really patchwork system where like different cities obviously like a utah a dry county or like a religious uh-huh. state would be like would have crazy censorship to movies but it was done piecemeal like so one movie might be cut differently for five different states oh wow which was crazy yeah yeah and so i think the code, the production code was kind of put in place to try to like standardize that a little bit uh-huh. from the top where it was like, you know, if, if the production code says it's okay, then all the states can feel comfortable showing it and they don't have to do their own censorship to it. Right. Um, but so what, what's amazing about the pre-code, the pre-code, so-called pre-code era is between, I guess, 1930 and 33, it was kind of like a free form. It was like the beginning of talkies. And the code was there, but toothless. And so what marks films from that era is that there's a sexiness. Uh, the source material could be followed true to life. So if a novel has as a story about a criminal and ha- what their life was like and how they got away with it, that could be played out in the movie. So there's like, you know, it could have a more sad ending. It could have like... Yeah. Um, prostitution um the length lots of sexual innuendo i mean 
by today's standards, all these movies are super tame. There's like barely anything like crazy now, but yeah, but back then it was like, you know, seen as real, real sketchy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it's amazing because after that, so in 1933, when the code started, I mean, censorship was just, was rampant at that point. Yeah. And so one of the, one of the production code rules was that no crime can go unpunished. So anytime you're watching a movie between let's say 34 and in, up until into the fifties, any crime you see happen in a movie, it's almost guaranteed that that person is going to like have some comeuppance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Either some repentance or some jail time or something, because that's just, that was literally written at the code. You couldn't, they, you couldn't show someone get away with a crime. Wow. And it's crazy. Cause even like some great movies, obviously all the film noirs in the forties, but there's always a trademark is like, they will pay for their crime, you know, to the point, to the point where even, uh, even the gangster movies. So like uh, a famous pre-code gangster movie is called the public enemy, James Cagney, right. You know, super ruthless. There's lots of like uh, killing and sexual innuendo and stuff like that in the movie. Yeah. And it's like fast talking Jimmy Cagney, like in his like first big starring role, I think. And, um, you know, in their attempt to like make gangster movies post code, I mean, they had like part of the code also was like, you couldn't show a, a criminal using a Tommy gun really there's no you'll never see after 34 you'll never see a gangster shooting a tommy gun you can see cops shooting it at gangsters but you can't see a gangster shooting at a cost even though like preco that's all you know it was like tommy guns like (laughs) like Uh you know mowing people down and stuff like that um so they flipped it (laughs) like there's a there's even a i forget the name of the movie now but there's a movie where they flipped it where cagney they're like we need to get cagney playing a gangster type so we can have his dialogue and his, and his like, and his, so they, he basically played a, uh, a person who used to be a gangster who turned into a cop, but knows everybody. So basically it could almost do the same kind of movie, but mm. in the end, the the good guy wins because, uh-huh. because Cagney's now a cop, but you get to hear him do all the same stuff. You know, it was like a weird way to like subvert the system. That's funny. If you were going to recommend uh, for a person who's new to pre-code movies, one film to watch, which would it be? I mean, there's so many. I think I gave you like Babyface. Babyface was really good. Yeah, it's like a Stanwyck, Barbara Stanwyck movie. And again, like, oh man, I, I'm going on tangents here, but there's like an incredible, there's an incredible podcast called You Must Remember This by this woman, Karina Longworth. And I'm obsessed with it. I mean, she talks, all she talks about is like um, the history of Hollywood, the first hundred years of Hollywood. And it's just like mind blowing. And she, yeah. she, so she has like a Stanwyck episode where she talks about Stanwyck and like fucking mind blowing, like such a crazy bohemian, like wow. so many, so many abortions, fucking every single co-star she ever like had. I mean, just insane life. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> Yeah, all these stars from then had like crazy lives. It's really fascinating. Um, yeah. So like Babyface is interesting because it's like what makes it so pre-code is just the harshness of it. I mean, like a father literally tries to pimp out his daughter. She has this rough life, you know, and she's like uh, like hard as nails kind of thing. Yeah. Um, there's a movie called Red Dust, which is an early Gene Harlow movie. 
And again, like a lot of these stories are kind of like regular Hollywood movies, but there's just like the pre-code spiciness to it. it means that yeah. there's gonna be like a lot more sexual jokes, a lot of lot like they'll do these like you know, um salacious shots of like legs, you know, it's like a big deal, like like look at this leg shot. Yeah, but you can yeah. tell it's like you can tell at the time, like I can imagine theater goers at the time like being like, oh my God, look at those gams. <laughs> You know, because it was just, it would just be like a weird shot that hovered extra long on a, on the legs, you know, super chase nowadays. But, um, but in Redheaded Woman, Jean Harlow, like, um, takes a bath in a barrel, like, and she's, so she's nude in this barrel. Yeah. That's pretty, like, that's pretty racy. I mean, they don't really show anything, but there's like side boob and like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, but it's, you know, so like, that's a, sort of like a hardcore example, but the movie's like fun and good too. It's like Clark, Clark Gable and oh, yeah. Harlow. And then there's like the Thin Man. Movie. I don't know that. I don't know. Oh, that, that was a series, right? There's a series. Yeah. It's like, well, it was so popular. It was, it was essentially a B movie that became so popular that it, it spawned us uh, like, yeah, like there's like the Thin Man Returns, the... I mean, into like where the thin man is like married with a kid kind of thing, you know, it's like, uh, it just follows Nick and Nora. Um, and that's William Powell and Myrna Loy. Yeah. That was, that's just a fun movie. It's just really fun. And there's this, I mean, there's, there's nothing, you know, there's a, probably like some gratuitous scenes where Myrna Loy has like a see-through top on. That was the big back then. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think Jean Harlow ever had a bra on in her life, <laughs> you know? So it's like, you're basically seeing, breast the whole time but it's always like covered you know it's like yeah yeah see everything it's crazy it's like all these movies have the girls never have a bra on i really wanted to talk about western books okay tell me about the westerns so one thing i forgot to mention what when i was really young i think one of the first books that changed me from being a kid who might be like ah book like i don't want to read a book that's boring was a louis l'amour book oh cool yeah and I forgot the exact name. Did he? Is White wrote, Fang by him? Uh, I'm not sure. He wrote so many books. I'm not sure. So some Louis L'Amour Western I read, and I lo- and I loved it. I was like, wow, this is like a total page turner. Yeah. And I think that started this thing, and then like part of it was also like early on touring with Mike Valley. He was really into Clint Eastwood westerns. And that got me hooked on those. And then, and then from that, it just branched out where I was just like, I love spaghetti Westerns now. Yeah. And I just can't like, I want to, I just like at the early start of the pandemic, we've switched now to thirties, 1930s moves, but at the, er, the very early part, I was just, every night was a spaghetti Western. I would like troll websites to find uh, DVDs <laughs> Um and it was just buying stacks of DVDs online of like spaghetti westerns. But um, one of my favorites, American Western, was The Outlaw Josie Wales. Yes, it's great. One of my favorite movies. So then I was like, okay, I want to read the book. And that started a whole, I just went on a trip with this. So the Josie Wales book, it's kind of like the movie is essentially two books combined gone to Texas and the vengeance trail of Josie Wales by Forrest Carter. Okay. So I read, I read this book. Then I'm kind of like, what's up with this guy, Forrest Carter. I started looking into it. 
fucking hell, this guy is a racist turd. Oh, no. Who used to write speeches for George Wallace. Whoa. And he was, and he was under the name Asa Carter. And he was like famous, fam- uh, George Wallace's famous speechwriter, like a segregationist and like all this stuff. And I was just like, what? And there's actually like an NPR segment, like the uncovering of Asa Carter, who now goes by Forrest Carter, who writes these famous books. I guess his famous book is something about um, like the education of Little Tree or something, hmm. like a famous book about a, a Native American boy. I don't know. It's mind blowing. I was just like, oh, I felt guilty reading it all. But like I read it and then I was like, wait, I read this book by some racist guy. Uh, does, does the racism creep into the book at all? Um, not, no, no, there's nothing like, I mean, all the Westerns have, you know, dubious um, Native American right, <laughs> sort right. of treatment in them all, you know, to some extent. But, um, it's, you know, what, what, which is amazing about spaghetti Westerns is like American Westerns always are fucked up about uh, Native Americans, but the Italian westerns almost never deal with the Native Americans. It's always like Mexican, Mexican right. banditos, and then right. a lot of times, it, a lot of times they side with the like rebel, the rebel Mexican side. You know? Yeah. That's what's interesting about spaghetti westerns is like the anti-hero is the hero. It's always like a really bad dude who finds one moral nugget. <laughs> you know, it's about him being bad a lot of times. That's really interesting. Whereas, like, the American westerns are so like white hat, black hat kind of thing. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, you know, the just the just uh, street vigilante warring for patriotism and for the you know for the American ideals for the white man kind of thing against the <laughs> the savages. Right. Whereas all the Italian westerns are just about criminals trying to steal gold and like or siding with the rebels fighting against. Uh, dictators in mexico and stuff like that yeah way cooler but anyway you know this was interesting because the book the movie does follow the book relatively closely yeah which is pretty interesting but of course there's like way more way more nuance and like way more grit yeah but then i think watch it and then i read deadwood recently oh i love that i interviewed pete dexter once he was great this was this was a page turner yeah this was amazing yeah it's very different from the tv show for sure. But yeah, but you know, like the same characters and stuff. So yeah, that was cool. So yeah, that's like a book I read that I was stoked on. Um, Have you ever read Lonesome Dove? No. Who's that by? Larry McMurtry. Okay. Um, uh, it was turned into a mini series in like the nineties, I think. And that wasn't very good, but the book is my favorite Western, I think. Okay. Larry McMurtry. That sounds so familiar. Yeah. He's well, he wrote the last picture show. Oh, okay. Okay. That's where, yeah, that's where I get it from. Yeah. Yeah. It's about um, a group of guys um, taking a herd of cattle from, I think, Texas up to Oklahoma, up to uh, Montana. And it's, it's, it's a very brutal Western. It's very, it's got, it's very historically accurate. It's really great. I'm having one of those brain farts. Cause I also read, um, I can't even think of his name right now. Look, for, for some reason, I feel like you're thinking of Cormac McCarthy. That's exactly it. Why couldn't I think of that? I don't so, know. What's the, what's the f- Blood Meridian? Blood Meridian. I read that when I broke my leg. Oh wow! What that's that's a weird confluence of events. Well, it was one of those things where it's like I broke my leg. I'm sitting on the couch, and you know, I was so I had a lot extra time. 
And so I did try like, that was like, I talked earlier about saying, I feel like I never have time. That was an amazing time. I like, I read more books and watched more movies that I would have never watched. Yeah. Yeah. That, during that period than ever. And it was like really fulfilling. Um, How did you break your leg specific, like specifically, like what were you trying to do? you going for a trick? Yeah. I was skateboarding uh, at a America demo in LA. It was like kind of basic in a way. I just was trying to nose grind a flat bar at the top of a pyramid at a skate yeah. park. Yeah. And I came down weird so in a, in a twisting motion. So when I, right when I placed my foot down, there was some twist involved because it wasn't like a big, it wasn't like a, some dramatic thing. Like, Oh my God, it was just more like I just landed and felt heard a, heard a pop. Oh no. And just instantly like hit the ground and went, Oh, like before I even hit the ground, I knew I just broke my leg. Like yeah. literally there was a minute, there was like a millisecond when I broke it. And before my body hit, and I was actually thinking like, I just broke my leg. And then I hit the ground. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Cause I could just feel it. It was like that quick. Yeah. Arto Sari was there and he came over and was like, tried to like lift my leg. And I was like, don't touch it. It's fucked. And then there was like blood coming out of my, so it was a compound fracture. Like, Oh one no. The, one of the bones poked through the skin. Has that been your worst injury? Yeah. I was age, age 40 and it essentially retired me. Yeah. You know, at that but, age, it's just sucky to like break your leg that bad. Yeah. And then try to, you know, so I, I, I did what it took to come back to skate again, but I just kind of also made a choice during that recovery that I wasn't going to try to like keep up with the kids anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, uh, you know what? I'm just like, not even, cause I was at, even at age 40, I was trying, like, I'm like, you know, clearly I'm not as good as all these kids that I'm skating with, but I'm like technically a pro skater. And I'm like, I could still like huck out some demo moves, you know, and <laughs> wow. The crowd here and there with some, with some of my, my stuff, you know, my tricks that I had a yeah. lot so many yeah. years. Yeah. But after that, I was kind of like, I'm, that's it. Like I can't, I can't keep up with the kids anymore, but that gave me that time to read uh, blood Meridian, which is amazing. Incredible book. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. At one point, the Cohen brothers were going to make that into a film, but it never happened. I feel like uh, my friend Mike Burnett, who is the editor of Thrasher, might have talked about that. Were they in an interview where they were they quoted saying like, "I'm not going to be the person that fucks up Blood Meridian." <laughs> See, he said that someone was interviewed or like asked about a movie, and that was their quote: "Like, I'm not the one who I'm not going to be the one who fucks up Blood Meridian." <laughs> <laughs> I love the language in that book so much. Yeah, well, that would be an incredible Western, though. I mean, so, part of me, like, wants someone to make it just because yeah. it might be really interesting. That's an yeah. incredible Western saga. So, like, the Spaghetti Westerns, Cormac McCarthy, that's the name I couldn't remember. Is that your I, whole pile from the Night's I also dipped into William Volman, William T. Volman. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I am. He's kind of incredible. He's He just writes so much and so big. He, his books are so... I mean, he wrote, like, a seven-volume book about violence yeah yeah, yeah if, so i haven't dipped into those i'm i'm too scared of, i think of like tackling one of those giant books but i read like um horse for gloria which is a smaller novel of his and then he did a book about train hopping that's called riding towards everywhere yeah i've read that one that's a good one which was pretty cool and i have the rainbow stories which i don't think i've read all of that yet um, that's kind of what made his name the rainbow stories okay and then what's interesting is like, I have a photo book of his, I collect, you know, I collect uh, art uh, photo books and I have a William T. Volman photo book called Imperial. Cause I think while he was doing um, writing, writing towards everywhere, 
he was shooting photos. So he was like hopping trains and shooting photos in the Imperial Valley, which is pretty cool. So it's like on top of being a, a pretty interesting writer, he's like also not a, not too bad of a photographer. <laughs> How many photo books do you think you have? I never counted them. Um, it's got to be in the thousands. I mean, it's overtaking the house at this point. That's incredible. You know, I'm at the point where I have an, like kind of an overflow room. So, you know, my life is like surrounded by books. Yeah. Surrounded yeah. by books that I barely get a chance to read. It's like the fucking sadness of my life, I guess, is that I'm interested in want and in, in so many books. And I just, I'm so busy doing uh, other things that I just feel like I never get to read them. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you had to save like one photo book in a house fire, what would it be? Probably Raised by Wolves by Jim Goldberg. Yeah, yeah. I always cite that as one of my favorites. I mean, I I have a, a bunch that are really special to me, but I think that one is like the one because it's both good photography, but it's also presented in a way that is beyond photography, which I've always been interested in that, um, you know, he kind of like, uses lots of formats so he he like as he's shooting he's basically immersing himself and he's collecting things so there's like ephemeral bits mm. he's known for one of his famous early works is called rich and poor yeah. which is also a great book yeah he went to people's houses photographed photographed rich people photographed poor people made prints took the prints back to them and asked them to write a little statement about the photograph or themselves on the print. And mm-hmm. then the book is basically these photographs with a short statement by the person in their own writing, right? Directly on the print, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. And then when you when you read through those short little things, it ends up being a really poignant work. Um, seeing how the rich people and the poor people see themselves and comment on their on their photo. And it's kind of like what you would expect almost like, yeah. um, there's like a lot of weird regret and tragedy in the poor people's comments and a lot of like smug self-satisfaction and like surface, like I look great in this photo kind of thing. Like I'm beautiful, <laughs> look at my cool house. Like, yeah. you know, and then the, the, the poor one is just like, you know, my life sucks. <laughs> my dad beats me like, oh oh, whatever. God. it's just like, yeah. Um, so it's really interesting. So like in Raised by Wolves, he has elements of that where the, essentially, I guess I forgot to say what it's about. It's about, um, I think he befriended a group of homeless runaways, right? young young kids who were kind of migrating back and forth from LA to San Francisco. And there's sort of, so there's a cast of characters essentially in the book, which is interesting. And he interviews them. So there's interviews, there's writings writings by the kids directly on the prints he shot polaroids so there's like grids of polaroids with notes on those maps you know just everything's kind of put in to tell the story it's like anything goes like i'm using photography as the main catalyst to basically tell this story but it's the story is like rises above mere photography which is kind of interesting and so i've always i just that book's incredible to me were you inspired by him to write on your photos? In part, I mean, yeah, I think I think it's like a 
generational thing where um, I also probably around the same time was interested in um, Robert Frank, yeah, who's known for the Americans, that body of work called the Americans, but post-Americans was writing on photos, you know, shooting Polaroids and scratching the nags and then making prints with the scratched nags and like doing all the stuff that was, that was considered, you know, extra photography <laughs> outside of photography. Cause photography is a really uh, kind of like s- stodgy practice when they, as it's taught in schools, you know, about the print and like keeping it nice and like the story should be told in the photograph. And like, so, you know, Jim Goldberg was decried, when rich and poor came out, it's like a crutch, like that the writing was a crutch, like the photography is not good enough. He needs writing to make it something right. Like, this bullshit. This is not what photography is. And it's like, no, it's just, I don't know. I yeah. mean, again, again, like I looking back, I think it's incredible, but I can see how some camps would think like, you know, you're bastardizing photography. It's, and so I don't know. I've always, for myself personally, I've always been, striving towards that single image that works on its own without writing. But a lot of times that falls short and a little context or a little writing or a little paint on it can elevate it to something else. Yeah. But why not, why not do that thing to do that? So Robert Frank is like a, probably the earliest example that influenced Jim, hence influencing me. And then, um, but also at the same time, I like fell in love with Peter Beard. I'm not really familiar with Peter Beard. What are his photos like? So he, it's really, he's got a very interesting story. He just died recently, this last, uh, maybe last year. He's a society kid, you know? He's like a rich society kid who came from an upper crusty family, but then who kind of turned his back on all that and went to Africa and was really enamored with like Karen Blixen and you know, basically just moved to Kenya and started shooting animals and stuff like in the bush. So it's hard to explain. It's like, imagine if a black and white street photographer was shooting elephants, you know, oh, like wow. in, the, in the style of Winogrand or something, you know, it's like, wow, yeah. he was basically just out in the, out in the world with a black and white camera shooting. So the photos don't have this like national geographic feel to them at all. It's like full on, just like, well, this is just a guy with a camera, like, getting close to an elephant or a, or a lion or something, you know? Yeah. And I think he like was part of an outfit that was like commissioned to like thin the herd of crocodiles um, that were infesting Lake Rudolph in Africa. Wow. So he was like shooting, el- shooting crocodiles, <laughs> like thinning the herd. <laughs> and there's all these photos of that. Um, and then, so the famous part of his famous book is called the end of the game. I think because he went to Africa, he was interested in the politics of it and was like an early person who was sounding the alarm about um, the encroachment of um, humans into elephant space and the, and the decimation of the elephants. And he famously uh, rented a plane and had a, had a pilot fly him around from above shooting the elephant carcasses from above. Mm. So in the end of the game, there's a chapter at the back where it's like a, it's like a whole chapter of these photographs, all aerial photographs of elephants. And you can just see the Jeep tracks going to them and surrounding them. And then, you know, they just like the poachers would just kill the elephant, walk up with a chainsaw, saw the face off to get the tusks off and then leave the rest. So there's 
all these photos are super brutal. It's like yeah, our elephant carcasses with the faces <laughs> sawed off, and then the weird trails of the people, you know, the footmarks around them and stuff. Yeah, seen it as an aerial view. Um, so yeah, really incredible work, poignant, like. Um, but then at the same time, he would come back to America and like shoot for Vogue. He famously discovered Iman. Oh, that's ended, cool. Who ended up marrying David Bowie. Right. You know, I'm sure the story is like slightly fabricated, but you know, he essentially he, you know, plucked her out of a tribe, like you're beautiful. And like, then suddenly she's a famous fashion model and married to David Bowie, you know? Yeah. I don't think it was exactly that, that, that cut and dry, but that's like the, <laughs> that's the romanticized version of it. So, yeah. Uh, but also the reason I mentioned him is because he's um, essentially known for doing lots of painting on his, his photographs. Okay. Fingerprints, collages, like, all sorts of art and writing and stuff like that. So like the visuals of those are, it's like pretty incredible actually. Like the visual style of it is like kind of like crack cocaine. How, how, how do you mean? I don't know. It's just visually. So it's like, it just hits all my buttons, you know, it's like cool animal photo, like weird animal photos with like all this artwork on them. I mean, he would ha- he would have like, uh, I guess, you know, prior is probably problematic too. I mean, I think he would have, some of his like natives, um, his African help had his house there. Um, we're probably doing a lot of the work on some of those photos and not getting credit for it. There's oh, like a yeah. bunch of like cool painting on the photos that were probably done by his, his African, uh, housekeepers and stuff. Wow. I don't know. Interesting, interesting life. I mean, he was, he was, uh, gored by an elephant. Oh my God. And tells, I think in one of the books, he tells that story of, like when, you know, usually an elephant will charge and then stop. It's sort of a bluff, but I guess one, this one time it didn't stop and he couldn't outrun it. And the story is incredible. I mean, he like, I guess he like saw an anthill as he was running and thought like, maybe this will help me. And he like dove onto the anthill as the, as the elephant bared down upon him. And basically um, the elephant's tusk went right through his thigh like through his like through his thigh bone or yeah through his quads you know yeah and then that so the elephants like well um it's like they stab but they also headbutt so basically the elephants as the tusk went through his leg came in for like the full head squish oh my god and crushed him onto this anthill and he describes how i mean it's like a it's like a squish toy he's just like essentially the blood all the blood from the impact where the elephant's head was fishing me went to my head and I instantly went blind. Wow. I guess when they found him, his eyes were black, you know, like that all the blood like filled his eyeballs. Yeah. So his eyes were just completely black and he blacked out because the blood just rushed to his brain so fast. Jesus. But he recovered from that. Luckily, I guess. Who has written well about skateboarding? There's one person I could cite that I have yet to read, though, so I, I can't really say firsthand. But um, there's a book by Jocko Weiland. Oh yeah. Um, I think it's called "The Answer Is Never," and I don't know if I have a copy here. 
I've been meaning to buy a copy. <laughs> but that's a book I want to read. And I think it might be a good account of uh, from an actual skateboarder about skateboarding that's not kind of like cheesy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't think of anything. Like, are you asking about, is there like a book about skateboarding? Oh, it could be magazine work. It could be a skater who writes, you know, I mean interesting yeah yeah that's that's i mean there's so many photo books there's like a plethora of photo books about skateboarding but there hasn't really been like a good history written yeah yeah there's sean mortimer writes has helped or like ghost written or or helped write some biographies but i've never read them yet yeah. he did a, he did a biography on rodney ball and i and i think on and on tony hawk for sure um and I think he asked me if I wanted to like have him help me do one, but. Oh yeah. I don't, I feel like I'd rather try to write it myself. Does that interest I, you to do that? I don't know. I was really like, I was really fascinated by Ian's response, Ian McKay's response on when you asked him that question, like, have you thought about writing an autobiography? Yeah. And I feel like he, his answer was kind of like, kind of dismissive about it <laughs> like he doesn't i don't know like yeah. he didn't want to do it or he didn't feel like anyone would care to read it and you were like a lot of people definitely would want to read that yeah yeah um i'm kind of in that stance though it's like i can't like it seems like such an uh a weird narcissistic exercise on on one level that's hard for me to get past at least right now um but having said that i do have an outline i mean i sort of like started thinking about um because i have like memory issues and i feel like it's going to get worse um i've had six concussions that have put me in the hospital jesus um and a bunch of other ones that weren't weren't as bad to put me in the hospital you know i've had my lights kind of my bell rung even more times than i can remember yeah, back when I was editing Vice, we put a photo of you after a head injury on the cover. Remember that? Yeah, Patrick O'Dell's shot. That's going to yeah. be in my forthcoming book. His platform of his. Um, yeah, he was there to witness one of them. Um, so yeah, I've had a bunch of times where I kind of like had tunnel vision, and you know, I went to see a neurologist at one point after the like, one of the last ones to see to get a. Uh, an assessment, I guess, <laughs> have him look at me. And he kind of like didn't assure me <laughs> at all. He said, you're, you know, he's like, you're fine. Neurologically, you're, you seem normal. And he's like, you can just never tell. He's like, you know, you see, cause I was like, am I going to go, am I going to get punch drunk? You know, you've seen boxers, how they get kind of like, yeah, they get punchy. They get punchy. And I was like, when is this going to happen to me? Or is it going to happen? And then uh, of course, recently there's been all this news about CTE and football players yeah there's a will smith movie about it and like um so yeah it's like you know i'm like when am i going to start murdering people <laughs> like, <laughs> or like you know start going nuts you know yeah um that worries me and then like yeah so i, I trip out on memory so i think part of the exercise of writing a little like i just put i wrote down every year i was al i've been alive and then tried to like fill in what i could remember from that year wow you know just to see like what little stories i can remember even if it's just like this thing happened and then 
later on I could go back and go, okay, I'll tell this story. Cause I remember this little yeah. trigger that I wrote. Um, so in theory, there could be a memoir of some type. It might be uh, more interesting to do like to write about skateboarding. Do you think that, do you, do you think you could do that? Potentially. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, my book that I'm working on now is a, is a photo book that is answering the question um, photographically, at least, <clears throat> what is it like to be a pro skateboarder? Mm. What was it like to be a pro skateboarder in this time period, essentially, you know, so the book is kind of from 90, 1995, essentially it's a time capsule from 1995 to 2012. And so it's pre-cell And the reason I picked up a camera was to start documenting skateboarders. I had been pro for four years and kind of had a, an epiphany where I was just like, what the fuck am I doing? I should be documenting this. Like I left, yeah. I'm going to, so from that point on, I started documenting religiously everything that happened on tours and whatnot. And so in the same vein of the book I'm doing photographically, I think there could be a writing companion. Yeah. Part of me worries. Like, I, I mean, I guess I, in the past, I used to fantasize about like writing an, an insane tell all and, and then like having it be published when you die kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I could tell the story of all the assholes and stuff, but it's like now <laughs> like, you know, it's like these people are alive and I'm like, on a surface level, we're friends, <laughs> but I have stories about like dickhead things they did and stuff. It's like, it'd be fun to like, then I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. who's like, just fucking rats everyone out. Yeah. 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 But I thought it'd be fun. Like, you know, cause it's like, Oh, when you, after you've been around skateboarding for so long, you, you've got some dirt, you know, <laughs> yeah. like you know, some stuff. I'd love to read that. So it'd be fun, but I, I don't know. It's like, then I, again, I was just, I don't want to be that guy. It's like, it feels like someone who, you know, like name names during the red hunt or something. Like, uh-huh. I don't want to be that guy. Snitch. Yeah. The snitch. I don't want to snitches get stitches. Yeah. So as fun as that might be, I, I don't want to do that. Yeah. But a yeah. book, you know, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know who the audience would be. I think there's a big, there's a big audience. I think. Well, would it, it would essentially be me writing about skateboarding for skateboarders. Yeah. But then I think I would be trying to write it for like, let's say someone who's not a skater. Cause that's kind of what I did with my photo book. One, one thing that loomed over my head the whole time I was shooting, it was like, I don't want this to be insidery. I don't want someone who is a lay person from skateboarding to open it up and say, why do I care about this? Like, I don't get what's happening. Like, why is this person important? You know? So I was careful not to put a photo in. That's just like, the only reason this photo means something is because it's Andrew Reynolds and, Right. Everyone who's a skater knows who he is. But so I had the photo has to work on a photo level first, you know, as a documentary photo. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I hope that the photos in the book are that, you know, they, they're, there's no photos in there that are only interesting because of the person who's in the photo. I think that's a really generous way to edit. That was always a, one of my dictums when I'm editing a magazine is my, one of my aunts has to be able to get it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, it's like that. And it's like, you know, and there's a lot of photography that's good in that way. You know, Allen Ginsberg's photography isn't great as photography, but it's great because of the people who are in it. You know, you're like, oh, yeah. this is a photo of Burroughs. This is a photo of, you know, Gregory Corson or whoever those guys are. You know, it's like, yeah, uh, yeah. but they're not necessarily great photos. It's kind of like, 
personal snapshots. Right. So I just, I didn't want to fall into that territory. I wanted someone to understand skateboarding and that's what I was trying to shoot um, when I did that. And so, yeah, I, part of me wonders like if you were writing a, a book about skateboarding, would I be writing for that layperson, or would I just be writing prose about like, part of me just thinks it'd be cool to like, it'd be partial memoir, you know? Yeah. It'd be like, here's, here's my experience in skateboarding. Here's some things I did. And I think you could write out a lot of that stuff better than a photograph might be able to capture it. Yeah. Especially the early years, like the four years when I toured around the country extensively with Mike Valley. It's like, I don't have any photos of that time. I really love how linked skateboarding and photography are. There's a, there's a definite link. I mean, you kind of like as a pro skater, especially that's the whole point of your existence is to be photographed for magazines. So, I mean, that's how I found photography was as a young amateur skater shooting with Christian Klein from Power Edge magazine, who introduced me to so much cool stuff in my life. You know, he was like a zine guy. So he had a zine collection and, and probably introduced me to my first zines and had a camera and was just, you know, so I'd be sitting there shooting, having him shoot me, but I would always be interested in like, how does this work? You know, teach me how to use your camera. And also I want to start shooting photos too. Was Tobin Yelland important during that time too? He's super influential to me, especially, yeah, right at the, at the moment that I had described to you earlier, kind of four years into being a pro 1994, right at that moment, I was basically discovering Tobin's work. I knew Tobin because he had shot me for skate mags, but I started seeing his work, his actual work. Yeah. And realizing that he was documenting his scene. Yeah. Which happened to be fucking John Cardiel and Andy <laughs> Roy and all these guys that were just incredible characters and living a really hard and fast life. So those photos are incredible. But at the exact same moment, and this is funny because it's so incestuous. So Tobin shot or took a workshop with Larry Clark. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And he got introduced to Larry Clark's work and was kind of like shooting, probably influenced by Larry Clark. Then I'm getting influence from Tobin, who's being influenced from Larry Clark. Then Thomas Campbell is about to go on a trip and ask me to hold a few of his books for him while he was away. Yeah. And one of them was Teenage Lust by Larry Clark. Oh, wow. And I like that book floored me. And so all this happened at the same time. I mean, I, I also cite Nan Golden's uh, Ballad of Sexual Dependency as well a lot. Yeah. Essentially, because both those books, Teenage Lust and or Tol- and also in Tulsa and Ballad of Sexual Dependency essentially are people shooting their own scene. And that's what Tobin was doing. And that's what I realized I should be doing. You know, I was like, basically all that happened at the same time. I'm like, well, Tobin's shooting like these incredible dudes up in San Francisco. I'm down here in Southern California. I'm just going to shoot my scene down here in the same style. You know, I'm going to shoot it. And it's like, I never worried about copying anyone. Cause it's like the cast of characters was so different. It's like the only thing I'm copying is the, is the idea of just documenting your own scene, you know? How long did it take you until you felt like you were a photographer? Like that you felt like you could own that title? Immediately. That's great. Yeah. I, I talk to kids all the time who worry about like needing to go through some gauntlet to become something. And it's like, you don't need anything. You just like the minute I picked up a camera, I was a photographer. 
I mean, there's a semantic sort of, you know, awkwardness, I guess, to like claiming out loud you're an artist or something like that. That just feels weird to say. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But that's more, that's more about awkwardness and like imposter syndrome and whatnot. But I just felt as soon as I started shooting, it was like, it was on, you know, it's like, I feel like I, I feel like I'm a photographer and that's what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I guess if you're just, if you're doing it, you're it. That's what I tell kids. I'm like, look, you don't have to like go to school to do this. It's just the minute you start painting and you look back and you've got five paintings done, you're a painter. Like what else, how else would I describe you? And that's what you're doing, you know? (laughs) Has a book ever made you cry? I'm trying to think of one. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I can't think of one right now. So I guess maybe I have it. I know there's been a couple moments, you know, those like chair moments when you kind of like sit back and look at the sky kind of thing. Like, wow, that was like, you know, when you just like reflect on a passage. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. But I'm, I guess I don't think I've cried. And it's probably, probably because of the books I read are like history books and stuff like that. (laughs) Right. I need to get some like recommendations from you on some books that might really hit the button. Yeah. Some waterworks books. (laughs) When was the last time you cried at all? I cry all the time. Do you? I'm a crier. Yeah, no, I'm a crier. About what? Movies? Yeah. Movies like, yeah. Yeah. Multiple movies may may, uh, bring a tear. But I'm just like an easy, like I said, I mean, even like watching some weird patriotic commercial will like trigger something in me. Right, right. And I'll get a tear or something, you know, just some human interest story that's like really sappy will get me for sure. Like I have like a weird sentiment, sentimental streak in me. So, um, yeah, there's been multiple movies that made us cry. There's, there's a one of the pre-codes is called Man, Manhattan Melodrama which is Clark Gable and William Powell, both, I think. And yeah, like the, the character that you end up loving ends up going to the electric chair uh-huh. and it's like so wrong and sad. And it's just like, like Deanna was just like, Oh, why did we pick this movie? This is the worst. Like she was fully, <laughs> fully bawling. And I was like, crying, Yeah. Like full, full crying over it. Yeah. You know? And like a lot of people at the stuff I cry at, a lot of people would just laugh, you know, like would laugh at us. Like, like you guys are stupid. I mean, I, I cry at like pharmaceutical commercials, you know, anything can trigger it. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like a really good Nike commercial showing all the athletes persevering. It's like, and they have the music. <laughs> it's like, I'm totally like that demographic. It just hits me. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, life is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you share books with Deanna? Do you guys pass books back and forth? Uh, we have a little bit. <sighs> Like she's reading a biography of Vivian Meyer, photographer. Right, street photographer. Who was discovered kind of after after her death, essentially. Um, so classic outsider artist. Yeah. And then I read a, a Robert Frank biography, and then passed it to her, and I think it's still on her nightstand. So I don't think she started. A photo bio that I really like is the one about um, Walker Evans. Okay. Forget What's the t- I forget the title, but it's it's kind of great. He had a very he was kind of a strange guy. Yeah, I've read I actually have a, a book on Walker Evans. It's not a biography though. It's I think it's like a 
a weird think piece about his work. Oh, okay. Is there such a thing as a favorite book? Like, what's the favorite book of yours? Oh, a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> favorite recent book is Gene Smith's Sink. G-E-N-E Smith's Sink. Okay. By Sam Stephenson. Stevenson. Um, so there's a famous photographer, Eugene Smith. Yeah. Here's marginalia. I took the cover off and drew on it. Oh, nice. I wish our I wish our listeners could see that. Ed did a drawing on the cover of the book. I have this thing where I don't like people looking at what I'm reading. Yeah, if definitely. I'm, like I'll, I think I took this book to Europe with me, so I was probably like on a plane and in trains with it. And I just hate sitting in the airport and having someone like judge you, judge your book or something. Yeah, that's such a common thing. I get to say I, when I used to read on the subway when I lived in New York, I would like cover the book up with like my jacket or something. Yeah, I just didn't want, I don't know. I don't know why. It's a weird feeling. I don't know why I care, but yeah, yeah. I think I took the cover off. And since there was like just a blank blue, I drew something on it. Um, yeah. So this is about the photographer Eugene Smith, who's an incredible, famous photographer. And the way this author went about doing it is really novel. Mm. So it's like about Eugene Smith, and it barely even touches Eugene Smith in some ways. I think that's why it's called Eugene Smith's Sink, because he writes about everything but Eugene Smith himself in a way. But by the end of it, you get a picture. So he basically goes to places Eugene Smith shot, talks to any surviving people who were around Eugene Smith, interviews them. Apparently, Eugene Smith lived in a loft, in a loft in a in New York, you know, in Greenwich Village at the time and was like essentially a halfway house for jazz people. Oh, wow. And so he was like, Thelonious Monk was there mm. and someone recorded everything in the house. So he's got recordings of all these jazz sessions going down. It was like a, a session house. Yeah, yeah. Dean Smith lived there. And so you like, he paints the picture of this, of G Eugene Smith's entire world through everyone around him. He does in-depth interviews with people he finds that are still alive, who were there. He dips into the, he, like listens to these recordings and gleans stuff from it. Somehow the sink factors in because someone sold the sink. Uh. And he went and like talked to the guy who bought Eugene Smith's sink. <laughs> You know, it goes to, like famously, he went to uh, Minikama, Japan to document um, the nuclear disaster there, or the nuclear plant was leaking into the water and like uh, deforming kids. And so, one of Eugene Smith's famous stories is, is um, Minikama, Japan, documenting that. And uh, so, he goes there and interviews people. It's a really super interesting book that paints a picture of like New York. And the jazz scene, and uh, I, it's like it's just mind blowing. But then you realize, like he didn't like it's not like a direct. Here's what Gene Smith did, kind of book at all. That's what's so cool about it. He kind of writes around him, and that, and, and yeah, it's like yeah. everything around him. But then it ends up painting an incredible picture of like who Gene Smith actually was. Yeah. That's so that's cool. kind of a that's an interesting biography I read recently that I recommend to people. You have done so much work around Huntington Beach and suburbia. And I'm wondering, like, what, what can we learn from Huntington Beach? 
What are the lessons that Huntington Beach teaches us? Oh, man. I feel like there's a lot of stuff that can be used. Like it's, you know, I guess a lot of places do this, but it, it kind of like is a living metaphor in a way. Like I try to say, like talking about living here still, people are like, why didn't you, why haven't you left this place? You know? Um, and my answer is usually it's kind of a love hate relationship mm. being it, being that it's one of the most conservative of the coastal cities in in California, you know, like in my neighborhood, there's a bunch of Trump flags. Mm. There's a bunch of don't tread on me flags. I see little QAnon stickers around and stuff like that. And it's like kind of mind blowing. I feel lucky that my next door neighbor is a Democrat kind of thing. And like, yeah. um, cause I'd be so bummed. I mean, and we do these night walks where I, some of the houses are really crazy. They have like, you know, Biden crying on like posters on their wall. Jesus. A guy in my tract has one of the fucking my pillow guys, uh, website, like the saving America uh-huh. and Mike Lindell, like that was on his lawn just until recently. And I wondered if like the Russian stuff, like made this guy realize like I should take this thing off my lawn. Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly, all the Republicans have gone like pro Russia. I guess, like a classic Republican, would probably be like, What's happening? Like, we're supposed to be anti communism. Right. Um, so, HB, like, is kind of like, I love it. the interesting part about it for me is like, one is like born of a lot of it is born of white flight. Okay. I didn't know that that's an interesting part of the suburbs in general, I guess it's like, or sort of like ironic part of it is that as in the fifties, when black people and Brown people became upwardly mobile and started moving into the cities, becoming more affluent, white people left the cities just like out to the, out to the outer ring to basically get out, like to have a more quote unquote safe place to raise your kids, you know? Yeah. So so that's white flight. It's like this kind of like migration of white people out of cities into the suburbs. And so I find myself as a product of that in a way. Yeah. Like I think my grandparent, my grandfather, probably in part, I mean, judging by his conservative, I mean, I don't, I never heard him say anything racist, but you know, he was a conservative white dude born in 1919. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure his move to the suburbs was part of this white flight in a lot of ways. And so then I find myself as a product of this, which I find interesting, but I don't, you know, I don't know what, what, uh, I don't know what HP can teach you, can teach anyone, honestly. <laughs> it's a weird, it's a weird, it's a very weird mix being that it's like beach culture mixed with the suburb. It's like, it's a classic suburbia, but then there's like this weird surf vibe to it. You know, it's like surf city USA. Yeah. And I mean, a book I've been meaning to read is Tapping the Source by Kim Nunn. Yeah, that's a good book. I've read that. Yeah. Do you recommend that? I, do. I have it here. I just have it. Yeah. But it's a set, that's like essentially about Huntington Beach, I think. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's like, like, a, set. like surf noir. Yeah. And um, so I think that's like, that's a good example of what, and I, and I watched that change in my lifetime. I mean, I'm probably a little too young, but I was like, as a young kid skating downtown Huntington beach in 85, I saw the end of it, the end of that, like sort of surf culture, 
which was super localized, like localism, you know, a lot of like get off my turf fights kind of thing, you know, amongst the surfers and amongst in general, like just, there was a vibe of like, this is our city. If you come from out, you know, like surf versus the vowels kind of thing, um, which sort of dissipated over as I watched, you know, like as downtown changed from surf shops to Jamba Juice, you know, um, you know, it was like all kind of low key surf shops, skate shops, drug dealers, uh, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, and now it's just like a mini mall and there's resorts and stuff like that. And it's like, so there's like a little edge still there, but most, most of the edge is gone. And so in a way that's a metaphor, but that kind of happens in a lot of cities. Um, yeah, it's kind of a microcosm of a lot of America. Yeah. So it, it ends up being a microcosm of a lot of larger things that I find interesting in a lot of ways, but yeah. It's funny how the grit is still kind of there. There's like, it still attracts a certain wackiness. It's like Venice light. <laughs> you know, Huntington Beach is Venice light. It's yeah. got all the little bit of the, most of the elements, but it's like, I just don't know how, and Venice is the same way. It's like for the property prices and stuff, how are any, like, how is there any freaks still here? Yeah. You know, it's like, it should be all doctors and lawyers living here. And that's kind of what I feel like over the years it's, it's turned into. It's like, it's less and less interesting photographically because it's mostly just families, you know, affluent families walking around here. Yeah. And the, the, the crazy guys are not, not as, not as apparent, but having said that, there's still like a, a very local homeless population that I'm familiar with every Sunday. There's a drum circle that really lets the freak flag freak flag fly. Yeah. Um, it's essentially like a, open acid trip in public <laughs> i mean there's just people who just go bonkers out there dancing and like you can tell they're on something when you've put together um toy machine videos like what have been some cinematic inspirations gosh i mean skateboard videos are essentially like it's fun, like cinematic aspirations and skate video and the word skate video don't even like fit in the same <laughs> at least at least in my experience i know like spike jones has made yeah some incredible videos and like uh a lot of the like ty evans and a lot of these guys have made yeah really like um incredible bounds but in my experience it's mostly seat of the pants you know documentary filmmaking you know yeah it's gonzo journalism <laughs> it's like um because you're just trying to like capture something on film and then string it together and there's like it's essentially a, a collection of clips. But having said that, so the, the one video I fully did myself was Toy Machine's Jump Off a Building. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if there's like a certain person that I was influenced by. Probably just influenced in general by music videos and stuff and like editing to like Sonic Youth songs. So I would tend to use a lot of like the, the outside footage in weird ways with the music, try to create like this, um, you know, essentially the video version of a collage. It's like a video collage, but strung to music. So that, you know, as the song would reach a crescendo, I would have footage that kind of like, um, fit that, that up, that upbeat or that climax kind of thing 
this is that this is like the interstitial stuff this is like outside of the parts because the, the writers would be so in tune with their parts like what they wanted you know it's like i have like the order i want i have the song i want etc so that was kind of dictated by the writers but then all the stuff in between you know so like the opening intro and stuff it's like you know i look at like our video good and evil opening the opening intro is set to dinosaur juniors cracked which has probably one of the most face meltingest guitar solos ever i would list it in like the top 10 most epic guitar solos ever and i'm like particularly proud of this clip right right when the guitar's like wailing like <laughs> and it's like uh josh harmony one of my right one of the writers on the team at the time is like falling off a ledge but he's like spinning as he goes down it right as the song going and he's spinning and it's just like i'm like that's perfect like that ended up being such a perfect and then he like falls and hits and like there's all these slams during it and stuff so it's like it really just hits home but it's like a lot of times they're just designed to be like epic fun more than cinematic like the last thing i want is a kid to be sitting there going like oh look at how beautiful this is rad like they're supposed to be like yes this makes you want to skate like that's right right that's kind of what you're going for yeah so it's yeah i don't know it's it's less uh subtle but in jump off a building there is some like after the video ends i like went on to like an artistic rampage with that there's like a there's like a (laughs) there's a 10 minute kaleidoscope of clips and and songs (laughs) And it's yeah. almost like, here's just like, here's what Toy Mission is in visual terms, you know, using all the little bits that we collected of the different writers and different things happening. And one of the, uh, one of the videos, so I think in our Good and, Good and Evil DVD, we went nuts on the special bonus features. I think there's like, might be like 37 different Holy shit. bonus features or something crazy. <laughs> like just We just threw everything in like, toy machine commercial that's a that's a bonus feature but then we made special things for it yeah so i made a purpose i purposely made ed's art film it's called Uh and it's like i think it's like a it might be like a i can't remember how long it is it might be like a 10 minute 15 minute literally just a collage yeah it's ed's art film but it's like using some of my documentary footage from like an iphone and stuff i shot on tour yeah and clips that aren't mine even like you know so it's like a mixture of clips i filmed and clips that we had um of us doing shenanigans blowing up stuff in the tour van like throwing because billy marks would open we'd buy fireworks like in when we drove through arizona yeah billy marks would spend the whole drive cutting them open with a razor blade and taking the gunpowder out and putting them in a water bottle holy shit and he would poke a hole in the cap and put a fuse in. And I mean, one time we drove up to a hotel, opened the lobby door and hucked one of those in <laughs> and closed it and then watched it explode, which would be like, we'd be arrested for terrorism now. This is before 9-11. Yeah. So we did stuff like that. And there's some footage of that stuff in there, stuff like that in there showing us doing that kind of stuff but it's kind of like mixed with music and stuff and yeah yeah no it's real artsy if you feel like watching a like a sort of a a soundscape (laughs) visual soundscape kind of thing find that good and evil dvd 
Thanks, Ed, for your time and generosity. It was great talking with you, and I definitely walked away with a list of things to read and watch. Um, after we talked, Ed followed up with a couple of thoughts. Let's see. The place Eugene Smith went in Japan is actually called Minamata. Uh, that's M-I-N-A-M-A-T-A. Ed also wrote, uh, quote, When I said I'm patriotic, I meant it in a Thomas Paine sort of way, as in dissent is patriotic. I think patriotism breeds racism, end quote. And lastly, he thinks the biography his, his grandfather wanted him to read was um, Andrew Jackson's and not Hamilton's. And that is actually a very important distinction. So, um, yeah, please, if you're enjoying this podcast, take a minute to subscribe and like it and all that stuff. If you're feeling particularly generous, maybe you can leave a review, too. This episode was recorded by me in Los Angeles while Ed was in Huntington Beach, a.k.a. HB. It was post-produced and edited by Justin Geller and Lars Kreslins, both in Philadelphia. And the music is Bach, arranged and performed by Cyrus Germani in Los Angeles. Okay, thanks a lot. Talk to you next time.